0: I'm sure some people will come later. It's just kind of the way it is with Crossway; people show up late, so I'm trying to not help that. Uh, but I I have a lot to cover this morning. I don't I don't think we'll cover it all, but I'm optimistic that we will. Uh, but I'm I'm hoping that we can. So this should be I'm hoping this is a really enjoyable time, uh, but also profitable. This is a class I've been eagerly anticipating for a while now. I took a class on the Puritans in seminary, easily one of my favorite classes. And so much to learn uh, from them. It just really helped me get a handle on some of these older books, some of these older um, authors that maybe you've heard of. And so I think it's going to be hopefully enjoyable, but also profitable. OK, this morning, I just want to let you know, it's going to be a lot of history. So if you love history like me, you're like, this is awesome. If you're not, I will try to make it as enjoyable as possible. Um, history is not boring. If you have a history teacher that teaches history and it's boring, you have a horrible history teacher. And I'm sorry for you. My soul is pained. Um, and Seth understands, right? Yes. I'm not talking about Seth. Seth is a good history teacher from what I understand. Um, some people, yeah, who shall remain nameless. No. So, um, Yeah, let me start with that. I'll get to books and stuff at the end. There's going to be a book giveaway every single week. Should be should be lots of fun stuff. Let me give you rough structure of class, okay? First two weeks are kind of big picture introduction, okay? First two weeks big picture introduction. This week mainly a historical introduction. Next week kind of a theological introduction, and then after that the remaining eight weeks that we have are going to be kind of looking at some central aspects. Um, in Puritan theology and devotion, kind of some motifs. You know, like, what did they say about sin? Okay, what did they say about sanctification? How did they do biblical meditation? How did they, um, you know, address marriage and family, work ethic? Um, It's, I really want it to be mainly practical, hence the title, Puritan theology and devotion, mainly getting to the devotion, but we kind of got to, you got to get that introduction, groundwork. Who are we even talking about? Stuff like that. Okay, so two main goals uh to answer two questions to answer in this equipping hour number one who exactly were the puritans okay who on earth are we even talking about what did they believe why are they still remembered these days are they remembered correctly should we even remember them um kind of starting there who exactly were the puritans that's this week and next week uh kind of and then secondly this is the main thing i want to focus on what can they contribute to your everyday walk with the lord Uh, We're not just studying history, uh, church history, just for, hey, it's fun and interesting, but actually because I think it can radically impact your everyday walk with the Lord. And so that's the subtitle, Visible Saints, Introducing Puritan Theology and Devotion, not only looking at their doctrine and theology, what did they believe, but how did it impact their life, okay? And right off the bat, this is where I think uh, this is actually one of the greatest contributions the Puritans can have. Uh, This is... Vitally important. You don't see in uh, Puritan literature a divide between doctrine and devotion. They, they don't make a divide between theology and living. I just want to give you a few quotes here. How some Puritan stalwarts, we would say, how they defined theology. And notice, I mean, these are short and punchy, but they're insightful. William Perkins, he's kind of the uh, we, we would kind of say the grandfather or kind of the originator of Puritan theology. He kind of defines it as the science of living blessedly forever. By the way, on your handout, if you, have th- you should have three points. I'm getting to that later. Um, Peter Lewis's definition is really helpful, but these are kind of some preliminary ones. The science of living blessedly forever. I think if you asked me, hey, Caleb, how would you define theology? I would not start by defining it as something that has to do with my living, right? He starts with, it's how we live. I think I would say, oh, it's the study of God. Uh, anything theological, we're studying God, saying God in his word. Perkins would define it the science of living blessedly forever. William Ames, the science of living to God. They don't make this divide between theology and practice. They link the two together. Notice how they both have what? Living, right? The study of living blessedly forever. The study of living to God. That's why you read, you know, especially if you're reading Puritan sermons, you're going to see this all the time. And this is mainly their works. They'll have a sermon. They'll have the doctrine, you know, god is omnipotent and they you know prove from scripture how this is true and then after that they'll have use and what they mean by use is application okay how does that doctrine affect us how we live and you know if you know the puritans it's kind of funny they'll have one doctrine and then they have 27 uses right so you know don't don't give uh mark a hard time when he has three applications to his sermon right um i'm not joking Sometimes these uh, Puritan sermons, they just go on and on and on for over two hours, 15 points, 37 applications. So uh, give Mark Brock a a little bit of grace. I wanted to give you this one definition. This you do have printed on your page. I think this is insightful and just excellent, which is why I gave it to you. This is from John Owen, one of the most well known uh, Puritans. He says, The knowledge of God and spiritual things study of theology has this proportion to practical sciences notice he applies it practical lived out that the end of all its notions and all its doctrines consists in practice okay so why do you study theology proper why do you study angelology why do you study uh, the doctrine of hell why do you study sanctification all these things what's the end goal practice right I think this is where they are so helpful because we can easily just get into an intellectual, this is really interesting, I can learn a lot and divorce it from actually living it out. And so the Puritans are incredibly helpful uh, when it comes to living theology out. They thought well and had convictions about the Bible and the Christian life and they lived them out. And so that's one of the things we can bring over to the 21st century and so by the way this is all introduction before we kind of begin any type of study even when i'm doing you know like when i taught joel on uh in the thursday nights this last summer any type of study i always find it helpful to step back and ask kind of the five w questions you guys remember those who what when where why and then the h how right i wish it started in w but you know there's a w at the end i i like to step back and go okay what are we even talking about Why should we even talk about this? What exactly is going on? First and briefly, why study the Puritans? Why study the Puritans? Much more on this in weeks to come. I think J.I. Packer puts it really, really well and punchy in one of his books. He says, the answer in a word why we should study the Puritans is maturity. Maturity is a compound of wisdom, goodwill, resilience, and creativity. This is ouch. The Puritans exemplified maturity. We don't. He's, he's getting to his point right there, right? We are spiritual dwarfs. They were great souls serving a great God. In them, clear-headed passion and warm-hearted compassion combined, visionary and practical, idealistic and realistic too, goal-oriented and method, uh, methodical. They were great believers, great hopers, great doers, and great sufferers. So just kind of begin with why study the Puritans. Well, one, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, Okay. They were our brothers and sisters in Christ, and as such, we can learn a lot from them. How did they live? How did they think through these things? Um, I agree with Packer here. They exemplified maturity. They thought well about these things. They grew up into salvation, and they longed for the pure spiritual milk that they would continue to grow. Um, And so that's initially why I studied them. I need to say this up front. They also weren't superheroes, okay? Like... It's not that they were sinless, no, they had issues, actually, the very last week, I kind of want to look at that, learning from Puritan faults um, and correctives, Um, but there's much, much that we can learn from them. So that's an initial why, why should we study them, how, this is an important question, how should we study the Puritans? Anytime you're doing any type of study, it's always good to go back to the primary sources, okay? primary sources is, okay, the people who actually wrote the stuff, okay? So rather than starting with, okay, I want to study the Puritans. Let's read what someone uh, in the 19th century said about them. It's vital to go back and see actually what the Puritans said. Does that make sense? Like understanding them in their own context and on their own terms. And one of the reasons why this is significant, I need to say this up front. How many of you read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter in high school? Or how many of you have read it? Okay, quite a few. Yeah. Good book. Did you guys enjoy it? I absolutely hated that book, just to be completely honest. Um, But that was my general introduction to Puritanism. It's like, okay, wow, like these guys are miserable. They are cold. They are cruel. They're hypocritical. uh, They are sucking on lemons all their days. Life must have been absolutely trash. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter is not a good place to start with studying the Puritans. Okay. Nathaniel Hawthorne, and by the way, this is not just something that, as a reformed evangelical, I'm saying this. Secular scholars, um, and especially in the 20th and now in the 21st century, have gone back and realized, wow, we've actually misunderstood the Puritans. Um, the 17th and 18th century people who wrote about the uh, Puritans got this wrong. And not just evangelicals, you know, guys on our team, secular non-believing historians have said, yeah, we've actually written this wrong. And so this is very significant. Nathaniel Hawthorne himself was writing in the mid-1850s. He was a Unitarian. We'd say he's a Unitarian Universalist today. He denied the deity of Christ, among all kinds of other things. Okay, uh, Not a believer. Okay? He hated reformed evangelical theology. He did not like it. So what does he do? He writes this fictional, satirical work to downplay what he saw, you know, just the horrors of Puritan theology. Heaven forbid they would hate sin. Right? And so he writes this condemning work. He's trying to condemn everything Protestant, everything good, everything we'd say is biblical. Okay? Um, and this catches on. And he's not the only one. There's other ones in the uh, 18th and 19th century that do this. I would just say this on uh, the Scarlet Letter. People will condemn it because they're hypocritical because they condemn other people's sin. That's true. The Puritans condemned other people's sin because they condemned all sin. They condemned their own sin. Okay? They hated sin. And so, yes, they condemned it. Now, just like with today, are there Christians who are hypocrites? Yes, okay? We shouldn't be surprised at these things. There are faults. Um, But you don't just take one example of a fault, which, by the way, Scarlet Letter is fictional. It's not based on true historical events. He's just creating, fabricating an account. Um, But you don't just take something like that and bring that into your study of the Puritans. Does that make sense? So try to, if, you, if you've read it, just take, okay, here's a scarlet letter in my brain, just chuck it off a cliff. Just, I, I'm not going, okay, I, I never read that, you know. It's just, forget about it, okay? We need to go back to the primary sources. I know that sounds um, simple and straightforward, but uh, need to mention it, okay? So with that all in mind, if we're not gonna start there, let's define Puritanism. First, let's define it poorly. Maybe some, some mainstream definitions that you've heard. I love this one. Puritanism. Is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy? <laughs> oh, it's just, it's miserable. We just want to make everyone, the only thing the Puritans enjoyed doing was making everyone else miserable, bringing them down to their level. Okay, this is a common one. Maybe you guys have heard of that one. The, I like this one. The Puritans hated bear baiting. This is, you know, sending hounds on bears, you know, to get them, uh, you know, hunting for bears. The Puritans hated bear baiting, not because it gave pain to the bear, but because it gave, gave pleasure to the spectators. Like anything you can have enjoy and, ugh, just horrible, right? You know, they sucked on lemons all their days. They just uh, were terrible. You know, they were uh, wretchedly unhappy. Another common misconception is they're prudes. They hated sex. They said it was, it was evil, intrinsically evil. That is just not true at all. Um, all kinds of these false things. Um, you have another one here. I like this one. Puritanism, oh, it damages the human soul, renders it hard and gloomy, deprives it of sunshine and happiness. Just everything doom and gloom. They were miserable people. Not true. Okay? These are all coming from 18th, 19th century people who hated Protestantism and wanted to distance themselves from the actual Puritans. Okay? So what has been good, like I mentioned, the 20th, 21st century, there's been a lot of good from you know, Christians on our side and secular historians realizing this is not accurate at all. This is a bad portrayal. And there's actually been a lot of good definitions. This one here, again from Packer. Puritanism was at heart a spiritual movement. Okay, what was it about? If it's not about just you know, miserable people, what really is going on here? It's a spiritual movement. There are people passionately concerned with God and godliness. Puritanism was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal, and evangelism in spiritual revival. It was centered on the gospel. Okay. Beeky and Reeves, another good introduction. They write about how uh, the most important trait of the Puritans that contributes to their being misunderstood today is the one that really did unite them all. Their passion for the Bible, their love for the Bible as the written word of God, for Bible study, for listening to sermons that faithfully and fully expounded the Bible. This is the foundation of their faith, their thought, their teaching, their worship, and their daily lives. I'm going to mention this later on. You have to realize this. Up until this point, if you go to church, you don't understand a word they're saying because church is in Latin, and you don't speak Latin. Okay? It's hard for us to understand. Okay? But you're going, and remember, pretty much all you have is the Roman Catholic Church. You're going to Roman Catholic Church, you're sitting in the Mass, you've got some guy doing some hocus-pocus, saying some words in Latin, he's, even if he's preaching a sermon, it's not a language you understand, and you leave not knowing anything that's going on in church, and you're supposed to have faith in that. You, you guys see the like, whoa, that sounds difficult, right? Like, I can see why that's a problem, and I can also see why when a guy gets the Bible in English and he can read it, and not only starts pre- if he just starts reading the Bible, you're like, I've never heard this before. You see what I'm saying? So you can see how this ignites just like gunpowder, TNT, and just boom, people are just passionate for the word of God. And the Puritans picked up on that. They were passionate about God's word. This is the one for your blanks. Three points here. I think this is a really good way to define Puritanism uh, that Peter Lewis gives. Number one, uh, what kind of sparked the Puritan movement? Number one, the need for biblical preaching. The need for biblical preaching and the teaching of sound, reformed doctrine. Number two, the need for biblical, personal piety. It's it's kind of a word we don't really use anymore, but kind of that word of spirituality, devotion, true uh, walking with the Lord in close communion and fellowship with Him. They're for biblical, personal piety that stresses the work of the Holy Spirit and the faith and life of the believer. And then finally, the need to restore biblical simplicity. Um, sometimes you'll see in the writings that we need to go back to the primitive church. What they're talking about is uh, first century, you know, acts, right? The early church. That's what we need to go back to. Because I'm looking about what's going on in Roman Catholicism. This is not what the Bible's teaching, right? So the need to restore biblical simplicity in liturgy, vestments. I'll talk about this later. This is a huge controversy. You know, the Roman Catholic guys, they're wearing all this garb and all this stuff. They don't want to wear that anymore. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say pastors, you got to wear this stuff. So they're like, if the Bible doesn't say it, we ain't going to do it. Okay. And that's kind of a defining, you know, this, we're going to get into the history of it. That's kind of a defining thing uh, is actually the clothes they're wearing. Church government. Um, some of you guys like you couldn't care about church government. I'm going to make you care about church government this morning. Right. Uh, so that a well-ordered church life would promote the worship of the triune God. Okay. So those are kind of some introductory definitions of who. Okay. Uh, what? Let's kind of proceed to the... the um, who, when, and where. First, when. On the back of your handouts, I give you a full uh, a timeline, okay? And I cut out a lot. I was trying to keep it as simple as possible. I some of you guys is like, I just don't care about dates and dead people. You're gonna care. Um, uh, no, there, there's some there, and I'm gonna go over some of those. Big picture. Uh, you could say the Puritan movement was from the 1550s, essentially to the end of uh, the, uh, would that be the 18th century? It's 1700, okay? So 1550s. To 1700 that's your big picture time frame okay um, where where was it puritanism as a formal uh, movement if you want to call it that primarily located in england okay primarily starts in england but then it moves all over you know europe back and forth eventually comes over to america it really was a transatlantic movement okay it wasn't just isolated in england uh, but primarily what we're going to be looking at in the next nine weeks, mainly looking at the English Puritans, maybe a little bit of some of the American ones, but mainly the English Puritans. So there's the when, there's the where. Who were they? Okay? This is where I want to spend the, the rest of our class. Who were they? This is, a, I think, a difficult question to answer concisely. So what I wanted to do is kind of give you that running timeline. Okay? So I think you get the history, and you're going to understand who they were. Okay? So we're going to go through... Have any of you guys ever taken, like, a church history class or anything like that? No. Okay, one. Okay. This is your introduction to, kind of. Okay, a little bit. Well, you're going back to church history class, okay? And I hope that it's going to be profitable. Not just interesting, but, but profitable. You have to understand, there's not a formal start date to Puritanism, okay? It's not like, you know, I don't know, the GOP, you know, the Grand Old Party, Republican Party. I don't know, whenever it started. But it's like, hey, we started this party. Or Crossway Baptist Church, right? It's like, Crossway Baptist, we started 2008, right? Puritanism isn't like that. The Puritans, it's not a denomination, right? It's just a loose movement. Does that make sense? So it's hard to define in terms of a formal start date. It's essentially an organic response to the incomplete reformation of the Church of England. You're like, what did you just say? We'll we'll define that, okay? But basically, they're upset with the state of the church in England, okay? And they're wanting to kind of change some things, okay? So, big picture... We're going to step back. I'm going to give you a timeline here. You have some of these dates on the back. 16th century, okay? All you have is Roman Catholic Church. There is no Southern Baptist Convention. There's no EFCA. Crossway Baptist did not exist, believe it or not. Um, It doesn't exist. Pretty much all you have is Roman Catholic Church, okay? They are the big dog on the block, okay? That's what's going on. Then you have... Sorry, that's Peter Lewis. Boom! Martin Luther... Luther's our homeboy, right? We love Martin Luther. He nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Okay, so basically, what he says here is he's like, wait a minute. He starts reading the Bible. And actually, the 95 theses, they're not really a um, you know, declaration of Protestantism. Okay? They're questions. They're concerns. He's like, hey, Catholic Church, uh, we're doing some things wrong here. Um, like, wait a minute. The mass... Uh, I'm not sure what's going on here. How are we defining biblical repentance again? Okay, does that make sense? He's questioning, okay? Eventually, it kind of blossoms into this. He, he grows and he realizes, whoa, he's studying Romans and he's realizing, man, we've, we've got this messed up, right? Repentance is not something sacramental. It's not something that I go to a priest and he says some words for me and now I'm saved. It's actually something internal, right? There's an internal work of the Holy Spirit turning us and we repent and have faith in Christ, okay? And so Luther, he's 95, he's got issues with the Catholic Church. He's like, hey, you guys, you didn't got this figured out, okay? Catholic Church doesn't like that, right? They're like, no, we do have it figured out, okay? Uh, They order him to recant. They say, hey, stop teaching these things. He says no, okay? They try everything they can to suppress him. But at this point, the Protestant cat is out of the Catholic bag, okay? I mean, it's just the Protestant Reformation has started, right? Luther has started this. It is a, like I said, it is like TNT just blows up. Calvin picks up on these things. Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, all these guys. And for all of us, this is a huge day, okay? 1517, and we celebrate October 31st. It's not Halloween. It's Reformation Day, okay? The gospel really was rediscovered, okay? It's true that Christ always had his true church, but it was shrouded in darkness, okay? This was amazing. Sometimes historians will say the Protestant Reformation was a bad thing, It was amazing. It was a wonderful work of God's providence. Okay, so that's going on mainland Europe. Okay, come over to England. Okay, what's going on in England? What's going on over here? These are our ancestors, you know, right? We revolted from them, but, you know, we still have some in common. We speak the same language, right? What's going on in England, okay? Well, Henry VIII is king. There he is. He looks like a jolly fellow, right? Henry VIII is king. You see his dates there when he's reigning. Remember, everyone's under the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Everyone's on the Roman Catholic Church. That's the official teaching. What the Pope says and what tradition says is what stands, okay? You know, it's not like, hey, you know, I, I, I think it's helpful to kind of put yourself in people's shoes. It's not like you have your own Bible and you're like, no, the Bible says this. You don't have your Bible. What goes is what the Pope says. What goes is what tradition says, that you don't even have the Bible in your own language, okay? That's what's going on. In 1526... William Tyndale translates the New Testament into English, okay? That thing starts selling like hotcakes, right? Because people who can read English are like, we can read the Bible for the first time in our lives, okay? That starts spreading, okay? Also, at the same time, um, the Catholics don't like this. The laity, they're reading the Bible, right? I actually have to mention this. One account, I thought this was funny. One account mentions, you know, the English people, they're getting the Bible. A Catholic guy doesn't like this. He says to the guy, hey, Christ never spoke in English, Right? And the Protestant replied, he didn't speak in any Latin either, right? I just, I don't know, I thought that was funny. It's like, it's a good point, you know, and the Catholic guy's like, hey, Bible has to be in Latin. He's like, ah, uh, no, it doesn't. No, Christ always spoke in a language that the people could understand, right? Uh, especially going back to the New Testament. So the Reformation's going on, okay? It's spreading to England through the English word of God. Okay, Henry, at the same time, he's the king. He's married. He actually had six wives, I think, so just take that with a grain of salt, Okay uh, six wives. He doesn't like his current wife. He wants to marry Anne Boleyn. Okay. He wants to marry another, another lady. Okay. Pope says, you can't do that. You can't divorce your wife just for, you know, any reason. Well, Henry's the king. Kings do whatever they want. So what do you think he does? He does whatever he wants. He divorces his wife. He says, I'm going to marry Anne Boleyn. He says, and also, by the way, Roman Catholic church, Pope, we're not Catholic anymore. We're Protestant. We're done with you guys. Pope, you're not the head of the church. I'm the head of the church. And I can do that because I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. So guess what happens? England goes pretty much overnight from Catholic to Protestant. Okay? Boom. Big deal. Okay? Now it's actually legal, right, to preach the gospel. It's legal to uh, have the Bible. Here's the hilarious irony in all of this. Okay? In 1517, right, Martin Luther, he nails his 95 theses to the door. King Henry VIII personally repudiates what Martin Luther says. He says, what you said, no, that's not true. That's wrong. The Catholic truth that, you know, the Catholic church that they've got it all figured out. Okay. The Pope even then calls Henry VIII the the, the defender of the faith. Flash forward just a little bit later. uh, He's like, "Uh, no, I'm done with that. I don't know. I find that hilarious. Like the Pope calls him defender of the faith. And a few years later, he leaves the faith that he so defended. I I don't know. That's funny. History is funny to me. Um, So that's what's going on, okay? But through this, you know, oftentimes God's mysterious providence, England is now Protestant, it's legal to preach the gospel, people are learning the Bible, all kinds of wonderful gospel things are happening. Henry dies, 1547, his son comes to the throne. Edward, he looks like a jolly guy, right? He looks looks like a nice man, okay? And he's good. He does a lot of good things. He wants to make communion more biblical. He gets rid of the sacramental system that the... uh, uh, that the catholics had he allows clergy to marry so if you're a pastor up to this point you can marry someone he allows that because he's trying to bring things more in line with the bible he doesn't make uh the uh, uh the pastors wear the catholic garb right sometimes i think this is kind of funny typically it's like these days like it'd actually be nice if our pastors wore nicer clothes you know generally speaking sometimes they're you know wearing like shorts and stuff like that not our church it's just like sometimes now it's like you guys need to put more clothes on okay Uh, well, no, not here. It's taking, get rid of those robes, right? Get rid of those Catholic garments, okay? He says, get rid of those. Um, he gets rid of the unbiblical doctrine of purgatory, right? You guys heard of that? He says, no, this isn't biblical. He's done with that. He publishes a solidly reformed book of common prayer. You'll see this throughout English church history. Um, everything's good. Life is hunky-dory with Edward, but if you guys are looking at that, uh uh-oh, his reign is not that long, right? You guys see that? Before I actually get to this, I want to give you kind of an account of church history, you know, what life was like at this time. I forgot to mention this. Now the clergyman, the pastor, faced his congregation rather than keeping his back turned to them. He spoke in English, not Latin, and he reminded the laity of Christ's crucifixion by offering them bread and wine. The pastor emphatically did not say what's going on in the mass is that we're re-crucifying Christ. No, the Lord's Supper turns into a much more biblical remembrance, right? We I mean we're even going to take a partake of communion this morning. It is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. That's what the Catholic Church believes, okay? That is their formal teaching. Every time we take communion, we are re-killing Jesus to pay for our sins. Okay? That's a big deal, right? Hebrews says once and for all Christ has been sacrificed, okay? And so this changes. They start studying the Bible more, and they're saying, no, this is not true. You've got pastors, guys like John Hooper. He actually was formerly um, a Roman Catholic priest. He comes out of this. He starts preaching the Bible authoritatively. People are loving it. You've got all kinds of pastors like this. Everything's looking great. Like I said, not good. Edward dies. Edward dies young at 15 at tuberculosis. And she even looks evil. Sorry, I'm just going to say this. She does. This is Mary. Mary is evil. You guys remember from uh, maybe history, Bloody Mary? You guys remember that? Bloody Mary is evil. She comes to the throne. This is um, Edward's older half-sister. She's a devout Catholic, okay? So she comes to the throne, 1553. And again, we do another overnight switch. Everything in England was Protestant, gospel-centered. Now, nope, that's illegal. You have to be Catholic, okay? That's the reign of... Of Mary, the Pope is reinstalled as the authority. The clergy cannot marry. Um, I mean, yeah, it's almost difficult to see, but overnight, this is what's going on under her reign. Just shy of 300 Protestants are executed. The vast majority of them are burned at the stake. Okay, John Hooper, who I mentioned, uh, maybe you've heard of uh, uh, Ridley, Latimer. Among them, 50 women. Right? Sometimes you'll just hear stuff about Puritanism is just a man's religion or Christianity is just a you know, patriarchal thing. That's just nonsense. That's just trash. Okay? Um, there are brothers and sisters. I mean, there are at least 50 women that in heaven will have been executed because of what they believed um, about Christ. And I'm looking forward to meeting them. Okay? So just ignore all that garbage if you ever hear that. Okay? So persecution is going on under Mary. A lot of uh, Protestants at this time, they flee to Europe, right? Because they don't want to get executed, right? So they go to Europe, including John Knox. Uh, They're seeing all that's going on in the Reformed churches that Luther and Calvin set up. At the same time, an ex-priest named John Fox. Does that sound from it? Fox? Does that ring a bell maybe? Maybe we'll in a couple seconds. Okay, Fox... He's recording all the sufferings and the persecution that's going on, okay? He's saying, here's all the executions, here's what's going on. And he traces the persecution of the church going all the way back to Acts 7, first martyr. Who's that? You guys remember? Stephen, right? Stephen is murdered because of his belief. And so what Fox does is he puts um, uh, Acts 7, Stephen, and he traces history all the way up to the present day, all the persecution going on in England, and he publishes a book... that's now known today as, does anyone know? Fox's Book of Martyrs, okay? He comes back to England when persecution ends. I'll get to that, when Mary dies. And same thing, like the English Bible, that starts settling like hotcakes, right? People are like, whoa, we stand, what we're doing stands in tradition and continuity with the early church. This is what we, you know, through much persecution and suffering must we enter the kingdom of God, right? And so Fox, he comes back, he comes back to England because Mary dies and Elizabeth comes to the throne. Elizabeth, I don't really like this picture. I don't, the other ones I felt were really good, but this is the best one I could find, okay? Uh, Elizabeth here, she starts ringing 1558, okay? She's Protestant. So it's just this kind of back and forth, like, teeter-totter. It's like, okay, we were Catholic. Okay, now we're Protestant. We went back to Catholic again. Okay, now we're Protestant again, okay? Elizabeth, she's a Protestant. She's not that devout, though. She's like, eh, you know, here's my version of Protestantism. You guys have to wear robes like this. You still need to do, you know, communion pretty much the same way the Catholics do it. She's squishy, I'll just say, on her Protestantism, right? Not sure how great she is, okay? Here kind of begins the Puritan movement, okay? 1558. This is kind of where Puritanism kind of starts running, okay? Under Elizabeth, you have the Elizabethan settlement. You have the 39 Articles. That's her outlining what church is going to look like in England. And a lot of Protestants, that are going to become known as Puritans, don't like it. Hey, no, 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 They shouldn't have to wear these things. Uh, We shouldn't have to do communion like this. Preaching needs to be central, okay? We we need authoritatively the word preach. We need pastors who care for and love their people. We need to get rid of icons and images. Just so you know, I disagree with the Puritans on this. They would not like that we have a a cross, you know, up on our uh, stage there. They would not like that. We need to get rid of every single icon, every single image. And Elizabeth is, is kind of waffling on these things, Okay. These are kind of these key issues throughout the 1550s to the 1700s that the Puritans are going to combat. Obviously, there's theological ones as well. The clothing, what are the pastors going to wear, Uh, the um, communion, images, icons. Another one here that's significant is church government. Now, those of you who's like, okay, snooze button, who cares? All right, you're going to care, okay? Church government, okay? This is central, okay? Starting when Henry says, hey, I'm the head of the Church of England. Church of England is Anglican, what we would say, or you could say Episcopalian. What that means is Henry and his archbishop, what they say goes. Henry says, hey, this is what we're going to believe. This is what all the little churches are going to preach. That's what you're going to do, okay? Rule of one, okay? Episcopalianism, okay? The Puritans are like, I'm not sure about this, okay? Puritans differ. They do not believe that this is biblical, and the, Presbyter- or, excuse me, the Puritans differ into two camps on this, okay? If you want to write these down, these are, these are still important for today. Presbyterian, you've heard of that, right? Presbyterian church, and congregational, okay? The Puritans differ into two camps on this, that the church should be governed either by a presbytery, Presbyterianism, or congregational. The vast majority of them are Presbyterian, okay? Presbyterianism is very similar to Episcopalianism, except rather than the rule of one, It's a rule of a plurality, okay? So instead of, you know, King Henry and his archbishop at the top, you have a multiplicity, okay? A plurality, okay? What you would have is, let's say you've got First Presbyterian Church of Bakersfield, First Presbyterian Church of Los Angeles, First Presbyterian Church of Fresno. Hey, we need to make a decision. Those three pastors, let's come together and let's figure this out, okay? What they say goes. Does that make sense? That's Presbyterianism, okay? That's the vast majority of the Puritans, okay? Just so you know, Crossway, we would disagree with them on that, okay? We are not Presbyterian. The vast majority of Puritans were. They were Presbyterian. The other ones were Congregationalists, okay? Congregationalists, on the other hand, believe that the Bible taught that each congregation, that local church, was responsible for calling its own pastors, for how they would conduct worship, for uh, seeing members in, for discipline. Does that make sense? That sounds a lot like Crossway, Right? That's because that's what we're modeling our church after, really. Congregationalism, biblical congregationalism. The Baptists really pick up on this. Um, They were kind of the first to argue for local church autonomy, okay? That local church. And there's no authority outside of this. One of the problems you see with Puritanism, they didn't make a separation between church and state, okay? Which we do as Baptists. They would see there's only the church, or there's only the church, yeah, that the state authorizes, okay? So there's a difference between us um, and where they were okay but again this is the minority position but there were some heavy hitters okay who were Congregationalists. this is kind of one of those things where it's like these guys believed it and they were smart so it's probably true kind of one of those things it, that's kind of a joke but it's kind of true uh maybe you've heard of thomas goodwin jeremiah burroughs he was a congregationalist john bunyan we know bunyan bunyan was also a baptist too so like he had everything squared away um he just he just knew everything okay and also john owen okay John Owen, it's kind of like if he believed it, it's true. So, you know, that settles it. Okay, so the minority were Congregationalists. But these are kind of these central areas that the Puritans would debate. Vestments, communion, what, you know, they would wear, and church government. Over the next 150 years, these were some of the central issues. You guys track with me on that? Does that make sense? Okay. I want to give you one kind of def- uh, definition here. What was wrong with the way things were? I think this gets at the heart. And by the way, this guy's not a believer. David Hall, he's a secular historian. But he gets it. What was wrong with the way things were under Elizabeth and going on? The state church had far too many ministers of any real competence and preachers at a moment when the doorway to salvation was shifting from a sacrament-centered theology, Roman Catholic Mass, to a theology of the word, centrality of preaching, the heart of the matter. This is what he says at the heart of the Puritan movement was pastoral pastoral, the church's betrayal of the people of God, they were focused on the ministry of the word in the local church, and that's where I think we can get a lot from them when we actually study their writings, because it wasn't mainly a political movement, it wasn't mainly a moral reform movement, it was a spiritual movement concerned about the word of God. Important note at this point, Puritan was not a term of endearment, Okay. You wouldn't go around and say, yes, uh, I am a Puritan, yes. And by the way, the people who came to be known as Puritans would never say that they were pure, okay? It was a term of scorn. It was a term by those typically in the Anglican church at the time, angry at the Puritans, saying, ah. You know, it would be kind of like if you're saying you're a legalist, okay? It was not a term of endearment at all. Nehemiah Wallington, this is a really cool uh, history look if you guys want to talking about afterwards. Nehemiah Wall- Wallington, he was a woodworking guy. He was not a Puritan pastor or anything like that. Um, he worked with wood. He was a lay guy. He wasn't a pastor. A lot of the Puritan works we have are pastoral works. He was just a dude, we'd just say, living in London at the time, working a secular job. Listen to how he kind of talks about Puritanism. All experience tells me that in this way, this way of life, Puritan way of life, is the least company, and that those which do walk openly in this way shall be despised, pointed at, Hated of the world, made a byword, reviled, slandered, rebuked, made a gazing stock called Puritans, right? You Puritan, you're just ugh, legalistic. See, it's not a term of endearment, okay? That's historically what's going on. So that's a historical movement. I need to skip a couple of things. That's okay. Time-wise, I want to get through this. Uh, we've just got maybe a few more minutes. That's a historical context running up to when the Puritan movement kind of begins. You guys track with me? I want to run through the end real quick running through kind of when it comes to an end. Back to Elizabeth, okay? She's a Protestant, 1558 to 1603. Uh, the Puritans are trying to reform the church more. It was an incomplete reformation. It wasn't as biblical as we wanted things to be. Suffice to say, they're not all that happy about what's going on, but at least they're not being burned at the stake, okay? That's kind of what's going on, okay? After Elizabeth, James I comes to the throne. James I, okay? It's complicated, But he was also James VI of Scotland, okay? Suffice to say, history like this, everyone's related to everyone at this time. You know, it's kind of like if you go to Kingsburg, you're going to meet someone that somehow is related to my wife, okay? I mean, it's just, that's going to happen, okay? Everyone's related to everyone. James I comes to the throne, okay? He comes to the throne. This is like the Puritans' hopes and dreams, okay? Because James was trained in Calvinism, reformed thought. He was trained in Presbyterian church government. So the Puritans are like, oh man, this is our guide, our hopes and dreams, everything we've ever hoped and dreamed of. No, nope, that is not what happened. James comes to the throne and that is not going to happen. He doesn't like Presbyterian church government because he thinks that's going to threaten his rule, right? So he's like, "Uh, no, yeah, I'm still the head of the church. I'm going to call the shots, okay? That does not work all that well. He also... He doesn't like the Puritan's Bible at this time, the Geneva Bible, okay? Because the Geneva Bible had all kinds of notes that were Reformed um, and Presbyterian. He doesn't like those things. So he wants a new version of the Bible that gets rid of those notes. And that's how we have the, what, 1611 King James Version, right? It's your King James Version of the Bible. It's this dude, okay? He authorizes that, 1611. Around this time, 300 pastors leave their pulpits. We're like, nope, we're done with this dude, you know, The Church of England is hopeless, right? We're going to, you know, sail for better seas, find some better land, and that's literally actually what they do. Because in 1620, what comes over to America? Mayflower pilgrims, right? They were those not happy with the state of the Church of England under James. So they're just like, you know what? We're done. We're leaving. They come to America, and that's kind of the start of this movement to America. Back in England, James dies, and in 1625, he even looks evil, too. Charles I comes to the throne. Yeah, I mean, he just looks like a bad, bad news bearer. like, this is not good. Charles I, he comes to the throne under his archbishop, William Laud. He essentially tries to do, undo everything that the Puritans did, right? This is not good. He's like, everything they did is wrong. He declares that you are regenerate when you're baptized. It's like a Catholic means of grace. Infant baptism, boom, you're saved. Puritans, what do you think? Uh-uh, we don't like that. That's not true, right? He says that the ministerial power of forgiving sins is not merely declarative. What's he saying here? When you go to church and your pastor says, you know, your sins are forgiven, he actually, your priest has the power to forgive sins. Whoa. We would say what? Who has the power to forgive sins? Christ and Christ alone, okay? So Charles is saying all kinds of blasphemous things in his Archbishop William Laud. He says that the Church of Rome is a true church. Puritans do not like the Catholics. They do not like this. Okay. This is not good. Tensions are building. There is conflict. There is turmoil. And so in 1624 or 1642, oh, not that kind of civil war, uh, civil war breaks out. Civil war breaks out. Conflict, right? Between parliament and the king. Okay. What you have going on is parliament. This is a much more representative body. Okay. You know, kind of similar to America, but, but not really. Civil war breaks out. You have the Puritans on the side of Parliament are going against the king and his forces, okay? Parliament eventually wins. The Puritans actually win the war. And they behead uh, Archbishop William Laud. They cut off the head of Charles. I mean, they're like, we're done with you guys. Um, I'm not going to get into whether they should have done that. Um, <laughs> but then Oliver Cromwell comes to the throne actually not really the throne. This is an interesting point in England's history called the interregnum. They don't have a king. Okay? Oliver Cromwell, which by the way, his chaplain was John Owen okay? uh, for a time. Oliver Cromwell, from everything I've read, he was a solid believer. Um, he rules as Lord Protector of the Realm. He's not the king. Okay. He rules in a much more representative way. This is a really good time, generally speaking, for the Puritans, but also some splintering. This is actually where the congregationalists, which by and large were a minority, kind of have authority, um, which they just never could have dreamed that they even had. 1649, 1658, that's a pretty good time to be a Puritan. Sadly, Cromwell dies. Cromwell dies in 1658. His son comes to the throne. Let's just say his son ain't got it, right? The apple fell far from the tree. It's just the government is in shambles. And so Parliament, I just kind of find this hilariously funny, but also just tragic at the same time. Parliament is like, we don't know what else to do. We should just get the king, the son of the king we just beheaded and just ask him to rule over us, right? And that's what happens. So Parliament calls back Charles II. He even looks more evil than his father, right? Looks like a horrible Disney villain. And so he reigns. From 1660, right? essentially what happens here, this is the end of the Puritan movement. Everything that the Puritans had worked for, for essentially 150 years, comes undone. Okay? Charles II is a Catholic. The Puritan's hopes are dashed. Persecution is ramped back up again. Many flee to America. It's all done. In 1662, Charles passes the Act of Uniformity. Okay? This is what's known as the Great Ejection. What happens is over 2,000 Puritan pastors leave their pulpits because the, the state church says, "Hey, you must do this," and they say, "Well, we can't do that. We can't sin against our conscience." And so, 2,000 pastors leave their pulpits. They start preaching underground, secret church. Okay, just as an aside, but I think this has significance for today. In 1666, the great—1665, sorry—the great plague breaks out. Remember the bubonic plague? Bubonic plague was still a thing. Okay bubonic plague breaks out in London, kills about a quarter of the population. All the Church of England pastors leave because it's too dangerous to minister because we might die. Guess who goes and fills the pulpits while the plague is going on? Puritans. All the pastors who got ejected, they stay in London and they keep preaching. So I don't know, that might have some significance for, I don't know, something that has gone on in the last couple of years in our country with uh, COVID. Um, And so just take that with a grain of salt. But do it then as you will. That is a rough timeline of Puritanism. Okay, why do I bring all this up? Hopefully some of you guys are like, wow, this is interesting. But it's also to establish context. Okay? We need context. Anytime we're talking about the Bible in particular, what do we do? Historical context. Mark is talking about Exodus. Okay? He's starting Exodus this morning. He's going to give us a lot of context. Because you just jump in. It's like, I don't know what's going on. We need to understand them on their own terms and in their own context. So that is what we're trying to do. All these men, you need to realize this, all their books, they're writing during a time of immense political turmoil, right? I mean, it's like changing hands every 10 years. It's like, okay, now we're this, now we're this, okay? So political turmoil, there's plague, there's civil war. We are literally killing each other. I know it's bad in America. We haven't gotten to civil war yet, okay? I mean, it is bad what's going on in England. Thousands of people are dying. Kids are dying in childbirth or very young. Just a side note, John Owen had 10 kids. He outlived every single one of them, okay? Um, immense time of suffering, okay? This is the Puritan movement. And so you start to understand why, when Bunyan writes Pilgrim's Progress, he gives this picture of what? A soldier, right? A Christian soldier in this fight of faith. Because what was going on? A fight. Bunyan was actually in the Civil War. Um, so that is what's going on. So why study them? Why do we do this? We need context to understand our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? They were our forefathers in the faith. We can learn a ton from them and how they lived their lives all for the glory of God. Next week, want to look into that theologically. So if this week was historical. Maybe you got, did anyone enjoy the history? I love history. Hopefully you find this interesting. If you're like, eh, well, we're into the theology pretty much from here on out. What do they believe? How does that impact your life? Their Puritan vision for all of life for the glory of God. What they'll talk about is experiential Calvinism. Or sometimes they'll call it experimental Calvinism. you're like, what in the world is that? I thought Calvinism was for boring people. No. They love the reformed doctrines of the faith. That's next week. Book giveaway.